<clears throat> would you pray with me and ask that the Lord would meet us here in his word this morning? Father, we are um, so dependent upon your presence with us, especially as we come to this time of the service where we need your spirit to take the word that you've given us and enliven our hearts with it. First, we must understand it, so I pray that you would illuminate it to us, that you would take away any misunderstanding or deception or distraction that might keep us from hearing from you this morning as we dive into your word. I, I pray for your blessing for us as your people. And I pray this in your name, amen. <clears throat> I apologize for my voice. I'm still battling through a little bit of a cold. I don't think I'm contagious, but you never know. Um, so, but I am, uh, uh, I thought I was in the clear yesterday, then my voice disappeared. So, uh, some of you would say, praise Jesus, but um, uh, for the rest of you, you're going to have to bear with me a little bit, <clears throat> and I know you will. Thank you for praying for me. Um, <clears throat> in 2012, the uh, second-ranked Florida football team, University of Florida, took out a two-page ad in the University of Georgia's student paper. So the University of Florida took out a two-page ad in the University of Georgia's student paper, uh, predicting that they would beat Georgia by at least three touchdowns in their uh, forthcoming game. And of course, you know the outcome. Florida lost 17 to nine. Their big talk didn't come through on, on the field. Similarly, the Chicago Bears wide receiver in 2012, Brandon Marshall, predicted that the Bears would easily be in the Super Bowl. And of course, that year the Bears didn't make the playoffs. <clears throat> American 14-year-old soccer phenom, Freddie Adu, you remember him? Much Adu about Freddie Adu. Um, we were told would be the next Pele and bring American soccer out of darkness and into the light. Um, currently, uh, Freddie is finishing a disappointing career in a third division league in Brazil. Uh, didn't turn out. All the talk, no game. Didn't happen. It's not just athletes, though, that are notorious for uh, talking big. We have politicians that are also pretty good at it. Uh, they're notorious for making promises, uh, especially on the campaign trail when they're trying to get elected only to miserably disappoint us once they get elected. So we have here quite a few evidences of this common malady of the human race. We like to talk, but whether or not we can back it up is another story, right? The spiritual life, I think, can be a lot like that. Many are willing to claim to know God, claim to believe in Him and have a relationship with His Son. Many even claim to be orthodox in their beliefs. Embracing the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the Trinity, and so forth. But as in sports and politics, so it is in spiritual life. It's not what you talk, but what you do. It's not about your claim, but about your game, in the, even in the Christian life. Does your game match your claim? That's the question of the day. Does your Christian game match your claim? <clears throat> this 
is the fifth authentic test of faith that we find ourselves in in the book of James. Um, and it could be stated as a question, does your spiritual game match your claim? Does your spiritual game match your claim? So as you look back over your life and just even during the, the last year, 2018, how active has your faith been? Uh, the question isn't how much do you talk about spiritual things or how much do you know about the Bible? The question is, <clears throat> does your spiritual game match your claim? How active is your faith? This morning we're going to dive into <clears throat> James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And so I'd ask you to turn there with us. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Are we uh, sacrificially serving those we wouldn't normally serve? Are we sacrificially giving of our finances now that we know Christ? I've heard many try to satisfy the necessity of service and sacrifice by saying, of course I serve, I'm a mom, right? That's, that's another definition for mom, servant, right? Maybe even some dads would say that, yeah, I go to work hard. I go get up early every morning and I go to work, I'm diligent. I, I love my family. As important as those things are, those things aren't the telltale sign of authentic faith. And the proof is easy. Most non-Christians want to do the same with their family. Right? So James is going to get into this important issue in this section of Scripture today. James chapter 2 verses 14 through 26. Would you follow along as I read? Starting in verse 14, James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? <clears throat> Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my works by my, or my faith by my works. <clears throat> you believe that God is one, you do well. Uh, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. In these verses, we're going to find, as I said, the fifth test of authentic faith. <clears throat> the authenticity of your faith will be demonstrated by the fruitful action of your life. If your spiritual claim is real, then it will be backed up by action every time. Uh, this test is going to spread over two sermons, and today we're going to cover verses 14 through 19. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to cover verses 20 through 26. But in 14 through 19, we'll discover here that James identifies and describes dead faith 
And then when we get to next week, we'll see how he describes living faith. So dead faith this week, living faith next week. Many of the New Testament authors beyond James were concerned about dead faith. Seems like this has been an ongoing problem in world human history. Um, claiming to know God or to have a relationship with Him and all along, it's not there. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul tells us that if we're truly saved, converted by the Holy Spirit of God, that we will be working. We'll, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So Paul's not unclear about this. This is something that is necessary uh, as a result of conversion. And so as Christians, we need to be desperately alert to the soul-damning idea that knowledge of the gospel truth alone is sufficient for salvation. Nothing could be further from the truth. Just because you know the gospel and can repeat it doesn't mean you're a saved individual. This is what James is saying. Listen closely, friends, especially those of you who've claimed Christ for your entire life. Listen closely. His first point, verses 14 through 19, is dead faith. What we do, James is going to tell us, reveals who we are. If you look like a duck and walk like a duck, what's the conclusion? You're a duck. All right? <clears throat> That's what we're seeing here. The genuineness of faith is evidenced more by what a person does than by what he claims. It is much more about his game than his claim. A person who professes Christ, but who does not live a Christ-honoring, Christ-obeying, people-loving life, I think James would call a fraud. Um, so here, this fifth test of authentic faith is a test to find a spiritual pulse. You know, in an emergency situation, what do the EMT do? The first thing they do when they get to the scene of the accident, they, they, they run up to the victim and they test for a pulse, right? They put their fingers on the neck or the wrist and they try to find a pulse. Um, and that is what the book of James is about. Trying to find a spiritual pulse in the life of a person who claims Christ. Is the patient alive, James is asking? If so, they will have a pulse, even if it's weak. You know, I, I, I'm certain that many of you throughout our study of James have had the question cross your mind, well, <laughs> how about me? How about my faith? And that is the point of the book of James, is that you will look inward. And I hope you have been. I hope you will continue. So James is looking for a spiritual pulse. So how we live proves who and what we are. <clears throat> if you demonstrate joy in trials, test one, there's evidence of a pulse. The next test, if you trust God's nature, trust that he is a good God, it's evidence of a spiritual pulse. If you love God's word, and if you're impartial towards people, it's evidence of a spiritual pulse. And here now in this fifth test, if you're consistently doing good works, you give evidence that your faith is genuine. It's authentic. That there is a spiritual pulse, that the spirit of God lives within you, and his spiritual blood is flowing through you, drawing you to good works, good deeds. Jesus was not unfamiliar or unconcerned about this issue. He, he spoke, in fact, quite often about it. I'm going to take you to the Gospels now and just show you this so that you can see that Jesus had some concerns also about it. 
Matthew 7, verses 16 through 21, Jesus said this, you will recognize them by their fruits. <clears throat> are, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. <clears throat> not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This was made clear, isn't it? These words of Jesus are fairly clear. But he continues. He says in John 14, verses 21 and 23, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it's he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then, within the same breath almost, a verse later, John records this, Jesus answered this person who was talking to him, if anyone loves me, let me repeat it, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus is trying to communicate something very important. He says this in John 15, you, didn't, you did not choose me, I chose and appointed you. Why? So that you would go and bear fruit and the fruit should abide or last. So Jesus thinks there is a strong connection between faith and works. What you say you believe and how you perform. John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Same chapter, 8th verse. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And what does this bearing fruit do? Jesus said it proves that you're my disciples. So if you don't bear fruit, if you're not active in the Christian life, your game doesn't match your claim. This is the test. The fifth test for us all to consider I know many of you went to Othello yesterday to serve some less fortunate people. I was happy to, to see that, hear about that, and this kind of thing. For someone who actually has authentic faith uh, is the new norm. It's, it's the new normal. It's not something that, that happens now and then, but it's the new common practice because we have a new heart that's been given us by Christ at the moment of conversion, and this new heart has divine origin. This new heart has divine interests. And so we're interested in the things that God's interested in because we have his heart. <clears throat> A person can claim to believe in Jesus and still not have authentic faith. How scary is that? Jesus even said this in John chapter 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at Passover, many believed in his name. Got that? They said, I believe in Jesus <clears throat> because they saw the signs he was doing. You and I would probably believe too. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew better. Their, their words weren't matched by actions. Jesus could read their hearts. And then we get to John 8. And we have the same group of people following him around saying, we believe, we believe. You know, this guy can make bread. He can heal people. He can raise people from the dead. We believe. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, 
the same group. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And if you will know the truth, the truth will set you free. So it's not what you say, it's what you do. According to Jesus, according to Paul, according to John, according to James. In all these passages I've read to you from Jesus' lips, <clears throat> we read that many believed in him. But they immediately begin arguing with him about his teaching. They immediately begin making excuses why they can't serve or follow him. I think this is critically important to, to recognize, to observe for us today. Many like the idea of Jesus, especially baby Jesus. He's so cute. <clears throat> but they don't like his tough teachings. They don't like his demands. As soon as Jesus starts saying, take up your cross and follow me, half of us are out. I don't have time. I got a job. I got a family. What do you expect from me, Jesus? This is what Jesus was saying. Jesus, if you, you don't have to read too far into the, <clears throat> the Gospels and recognize that Jesus demands everything. So, what is James saying here to us about the markers of dead faith? What are the markers of dead faith? If, you, if you're going to take the test, what is it that might alert you to the possibility that your faith is dead? And the first is this in verse 14, big talk. You're not shy about telling everybody how much you believe in Jesus, how religious you are, how much you read the Bible and so forth and so on. Unlike a lot of us. The first marker of dead faith is big talk. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says, blah, blah, blah. James isn't saying this person is an authentic believer. James is saying he's claiming to be an authentic believer. He's saying that, that this individual is convinced in their own mind that they're a believer. You know, people can say whatever they want, and many do. But talking and being are two different things, aren't they? They are. If someone says they're a Christian, it doesn't mean that they are. I can tell you I'm an astronaut. And you could disprove that quickly. I'm not an astronaut. I don't know anything about astrophysics. Astro or physics, I'm not an astronaut. And I can say it, though. Right? What James seems to be emphasizing is that the professor here in verse 14 is claiming to believe the basic truths of the gospel. Something almost all of us would claim. This person's claiming the same thing. They would say that the Bible is God's word. They would say that they believe in God and that Jesus is God. They would say that they believe that he died on the cross for their sins. They would even say that he rose from the grave and, and now lives forever with the Father. They would be considered theologically orthodox. But James is saying that believing certain facts does not make your faith authentic. Knowing Christ is not about checking off boxes. James doesn't identify what kind of actions he's talking about, what kind of works he's interested in. But I think we can back up a little bit into the book, and this, the book of James even, and see some hints. Look at verse 3, for, for example, of chapter 1. He says one of those things is steadfast in trials. That's a work that might be 
happening in the life of someone who's claiming Christ. In verse 21, we would see this, this person also is a person of moral purity. In verse 22 through 23 of, of chapter 1, it speaks of obedience to Scripture. In verse 27, it talks about a person who's compassionate to the needy. In verses 1 through 9 of chapter 2, it talks about not playing favorites. <clears throat> so if we consider these actions, I think we can develop a fairly basic repertoire of the actions that James is discussing. Actions that would demonstrate genuine faith. <clears throat> I, I've intentionally used the word actions here instead of works because I think when we use the word works and keep it in the same sentence as faith, we all get nervous, don't we, as evangelicals? And the reason we get nervous because there's been so much confusion and bad, frankly, heretical doctrine taught on this matter. Um, we know that good works don't save anybody. Uh, we're, we're familiar with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. We're familiar with that. We're familiar with Romans 3, 28 that says, For we hold, Paul says... For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So, rather that one is justified by faith apart from the works. In other words, works don't justify anybody. Paul's made that abundantly clear. So, Paul spent quite a bit of time in the New Testament defending salvation by faith alone. And so if we're not careful, we may misunderstand what James is saying. Hence my use of the word action instead of works. But I need to say that James and Paul are not in conflict with one another here. Uh, not only do Paul and James agree on the issue of salvation by faith alone, but they also wholeheartedly agree on the issue of godly action after salvation. Paul, in fact, speaks of the importance of works in the lives of believers in almost every single epistle. There's no real contradiction between James and Paul regarding faith. Paul teaching about faith <clears throat> focuses on time before conversion, and James focuses on the time after conversion. Paul was concerned that his readers might think that good works could persuade God to be kind to them on Judgment Day. James, on the other hand, had a pastoral concern for those who claimed to be saved, but didn't demonstrate any fruit that would confirm that God had actually saved them. So they're talking about the same thing, just from different perspective. Ephesians, again, Paul, 2, 8 through 10 this time, adding verse 10, Paul ties these two concepts together beautifully, faith and works. He says, if faith is truly saves you, by, you're saved by grace through faith. That is true. And then in verse 10 he says, but if you're saved, you will work. We are created unto Christ Jesus unto good works. If you're saved, you're working. That's what Paul and James and John and Jesus would all agree with. He repeats these kind of thoughts throughout his writings, Paul does. Uh, to Titus in chapter 2 verse 7 he says this, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Paul cared about works. The last phrase in verse 14 of James 2 is a question. You see it? <clears throat> Can that faith save him? 
James knows that there are different kinds of faith that people may identify with, so he asks if that kind of faith, that kind of faith that doesn't work, does that kind save you? James is asking. Does it save anyone? You know, we might get a better idea of what James is really asking here if we think of the, <clears throat> the answer that people may give to the question, are you a Christian? You may have heard these kind of answers when you've asked that of someone, are you a believer? Do you know the Lord? Well, sure, I was born in Texas. Could be an answer. Or, yeah, I was raised in the church. Or, yes, my grandma took me to church every week. Or, yes, I, I was on the missions committee for a few years. That's the answer to the question, are you a Christian? So, obviously, they're confused about faith. Many people are. People have identified faith with what is said versus what confirms true biblical saving faith. So James's question at the end of verse 14 is rhetorical, and the answer is obvious, isn't it? Can that kind of faith save someone? The answer is no, it cannot. <clears throat> it doesn't matter how strongly you declare your faith, doesn't matter how big your talk is, if there aren't accompany, accompanying actions, then the faith you're claiming is a fraud. It's not real, it's inauthentic. The great Greek scholar, A.T. Robertson, said this could be translated, but the, the phrase, but does not have works, could be translated, does not keep on having works. So James is a saying, uh, show up to work day once and you'll be fine. Or work down at the mission for, you know, maybe a day or two and you'll be fine. No, it's, do you keep showing up? Is it a pattern of life? Is this something that identifies you and your character? Are you demonstrating the possession of a new heart that God has given you that keeps on working, keeps on acting? The second marker of dead faith that we see in this passage is found in verses 15 through 19, and I'm calling it no game. First marker, big talk. Second marker, no game. You know, big talk is bad enough. Kind of nauseates most people when they hear about it, when they hear it being used. But when you add no game to it, <laughs> it's doubly ridiculous, isn't it? I wonder how the University of Florida felt uh, towards the end of that game when they lost 17 to 9 after all the talk they had done prior to the game about how much they were going to trounce Georgia. It's like, it's like when you're taking a walk through the neighborhood and you, and you walk past a house with a fenced yard and out comes this terrorizing dog about three inches tall. And they're just a ball of fire coming out after you. And then you turn and look at them and they, and they run off, you know, just looking at them. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, we had banty chickens. And banty chickens are uh, <clears throat> very small animals and yet they produce and, but they're small. Banny roosters are notorious for big talk and no game. Banny roosters, you walk in, I, I used to walk in, I'd go collect the eggs, I'd walk out into the hen house and collect eggs. Man, a big banny rooster would come up behind me just, you know, flopping the wings and making all sorts of noise and ruckus. And I turn around and look at him, and he acts like he's not after me. He's, <laughs> wasn't me. Every day. Big talk, no game. 
Second marker of dead faith is no game. When it comes time to live out the faith that is claimed, there's a consistent shortfall in the lives of those whose faith is inauthentic. They may know and agree with all the basic elements of the gospel, but when it comes time to exercise the faith they claim, there's always an excuse why they can't do it. Well, I'm busy. I'm sick. Uh, I've got a family to take care of. I've got this responsibility or that. You don't, you don't expect me to come then, do you? Help that time of year? There's always an excuse. Look how James demonstrates this in verses 15 through 19. <clears throat> If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? What good is that? This sounds a lot like what Jesus heard, the excuses that he heard about why people couldn't follow him when he asked them to. Listen to these words from Jesus. And they were going down along the road, Someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds, have, birds of the air have nests, <clears throat> but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, <clears throat> follow me. But he said, Lord, uh, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. He said, man, Jesus isn't too sensitive. Sounds a little harsh. Well, keep listening. Luke 14. <clears throat> at that time, Jesus is telling a story about this same issue. Um, why people don't want to follow him. Here's the story, the conclusion of the story. At that, time for the, uh, at that time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excuse. You can't expect me to come to the banquet now. I can't show up today. I just bought a field. <clears throat> Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I mean, it's my income, it's my well-being. I have to go examine them. Please excuse me. Another said, well, I've just married a wife. Some would say that's a good reason to go follow Jesus. Right? <clears throat> just kidding, women. I've just married a wife and there I can't, I, can't, I can't come. Newly married. I'm a dad. You couldn't expect me to leave my kids. And go to Othello? No. Then the master of the house became very angry. And he said to his servant, go out and quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind. <clears throat> and the lame, they'll come. So James picks up on this and he asks the question, what good is that kind of faith? Go in peace and be warmed and filled? Are you kidding me? What, what good is that to a cold and starving person? It's as good as 
someone who claims to have faith in Christ but never shows evidence from it in their lives. That's how much it's worth. Telling people, God bless you, take care now, without doing anything to be that blessing or to demonstrate that care is a sign that authentic faith is very unlikely. The reason this demonstrates an unconverted, unconverted heart is because it shows a selfish disregard for people. And God does not have a selfish disregard for people. And if we have his heart, we'll care about people. When you do a little word study on the words, be warmed and filled, it shows that these words were most likely said in a condescending manner, almost sarcastic. These words here that we see, go in peace, be warmed and filled in verse 16, are condescending, sarcastic in tone. and reveals a prideful callousness towards anyone in need or of a lower social rank than oneself. The words be warmed and filled are at best insincere. <clears throat> James is saying that it's obvious that this kind of attitude could not come from someone who's been given a new heart. The true child of God reflects God's characteristics towards others. So James confronts his readers here. He confronts us. And he, he, he goes deeper into this wound in verse 18. He brings up an imaginary character. Look with me at verse 18. But someone will say, here he introduces this imaginary character, you have faith, I have works. You have faith, I have works. James answers him, show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. James is saying, don't try to separate faith and works. It's impossible. If you try it demonstrates the lack of genuine faith. So this idea of faith and works are not in conflict. They're in unison. Have you noticed the artwork on the front of your bulletin? You know what that is? Look at it. What's the front of your bulletin artwork? What is that sign? And. Faith and works. It is the common running theme. It is the common question of the book of James. Does your claim match your game? This whole book is a series, is a collection of tests of the authenticity of your faith. Of course, James got these ideas from Jesus, didn't he? In the parable of the sower in Matthew 13... And Jesus told the story of a farmer who was throwing seed out, and some of the seed fell on good soil. And what happened to that seed? You remember? It grew, and it did more than grow. What did it do? It produced fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Friends, do you hear what James is saying? These folks that are hearing James, maybe even you might say, but I believe in God. What else do you want from me? I believe in God. James anticipates that comment and he answers it in a classic manner. You see that in verse 19? So do the demons, he says. So do the demons. Wow. Let me tell you something about demons. There are no atheist demons. 
Every demon in existence is a committed monotheist. They are also Trinitarian. They know and believe in the Apostles' Creed that says that God is the maker of heaven and earth, that Jesus is his virgin-born son. They all know about the truth of Christ's sinless life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his promised second coming. They've got that down. It would be probably safe to say that most demons are better theologians than any of the theologians that we tend to read. They know God. James's point, though, is, are they saved? Of course not. They shudder, he says. It's like the bristling of a cat that he wants you to think about. It's not like, ooh, that makes me uncomfortable. No, it's the bristling of a cat when they think of God. James's point is that the content of your beliefs about God doesn't make you a Christian. Having the right creed isn't what saves. Demons literally believe everything that you and I do about God. Tragically, hell will have its share of people who are monotheistic, Trinitarian, Orthodox, and lost. Authentic faith is more than a mental ascent to some facts. Let me, let me wrap this up here for you this morning by reading you a, a passage from 1 John 3 where John echoes James's test of faith. We heard this read early in the service. But John is simply echoing James's test of faith. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And what's John's answer? It doesn't. Little children, let us not love with talk. Let's forget the big talk. And he says, let's show some game, word and deed. <clears throat> in the 18th century, there was an English preacher who came across a friend whose horse had been killed in an accident. And while the crowd of onlookers were expressing their sincere but empty words of sympathy, the preacher stepped up and said to the loudest sympathizer, I am sorry, five pounds. How many pounds are you sorry? And then he passed the hat and said, let's show him how sorry we are. Is your faith real or is it a lot of this? Which is it? Now, we have a, another um, example of the union of faith and works in the life of John Wesley. Listen to this. John Wesley was a clergyman. He was a pastor. He was a missionary who worked tirelessly for the gospel. He memorized the entire New Testament in Greek. Uh, he was determined to bring the good news to the American Indians, and he slept on the dirt, refusing to sleep on blankets or on cots so that he might merit a God's mercy. He did all this before he was saved. He had no interest in a relationship with God. He just wanted to get to heaven. John Wesley admits to this. He writes about it. He did all this before he knew Jesus. 
The guy was a master theologian, and he didn't know Jesus. By the way, that's not uncommon in many of our famous seminaries in this country today. But then came that wonderful day in John Wesley's life where he saw Christ for who he is. Christ alone was the only way for salvation. Christ alone was the only portal to heaven. And he finally recognized it and embraced Christ and tied together his new faith with his works. And the rest of his life is wonderful history. Listen to this. He preached in St. Mary's in Oxford. He preached in the churches of England. He preached in the mines of England. He preached in the fields and on the streets. He preached on horseback. He even preached standing on his father's tombstone. John Wesley preached 42,000 sermons after his conversion. Uh, he averaged 4,500 miles a year on horseback riding 60 to 70 miles a day and preaching three sermons on an average every day. And when he was 83, he entered into his diary this amazing statement. I am a wonder to myself. <clears throat> Keep listening. I am never tired, either with preaching, writing, or traveling. I have energy to burn. <laughs> his game finally matched his claim. How about you, Christian? Does your game match your claim? This is the test that James wants us to consider this morning. If your game does not match your claim, it could be that you don't know Jesus. It could be that you have too many weights on yourself and making it impossible for you to serve Christ. Maybe one of those two. But the only solution to either is coming to Jesus with, in confession. If you are a believer, a genuine believer, and have too many weights in your life to serve him, you have too many weights to serve him. <laughs> Get rid of them. Throw them off. Follow Christ humbly, depending upon him to give you strength even in the midst of your busyness. Does your claim match your game? Embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior. You remember the story in the Gospels where <clears throat> the man of the demon-possessed son brought his son to Jesus and asked him to heal him, and Jesus asked the man, do you believe that I can heal him? Remember his answer? I think so. Help my unbelief. That's what he said. He said, I think I believe. Help my unbelief. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've spent the majority of your life saying, oh, I think I believe. Why don't you finish that statement? Help my unbelief. God, make my life and my faith real. Make my game match my claim. God, turn me from a life of self-centeredness to a life of others-centeredness. Make me a servant. Next week, we're going to look at living faith, verses 20 through 26, and we're going to see some people who had big game, and I'm calling them big gamers, Abraham and Rahab. One, the father of faith, the other, a prostitute.
We got the gamut there to look at. It's going to be a great day next, next Sunday, Christmas Sunday, and I'm going to do my best to tie that to uh, the Lord's birth. Uh, coincidentally, of course not, uh, those are both in the line of Christ, Abraham and Rahab. And it'll be fun to see how the Holy Spirit directs us in those things. Pray with me this morning. <clears throat> God, as we come into your presence now to the Lord's table, this special place where uh, you have promised to meet us, where you've promised to strengthen our faith, and give us direction and hope for our Christian life and walk, I pray that you would do that for those of us who are weary, who maybe even have questions about the authenticity of our faith, that you would bring us here to these elements and remind us of the gospel, remind us of your broken body that was broken for us, that our sin might be taken care of, of your spilt blood represented in the cup, that it would wash away our sin. Oh God, thank you for this blessing of the Lord's Supper. There are many in this room who need your encouragement, God. Holy Spirit, we need you to come now into our midst, bringing the balm that only you can provide to a weak and weary heart, a wounded soul. God, I ask that you would do this. And for those who are yet lost in the maze of profession versus authenticity, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would make these things clear to each and every one of us. That we would lay aside the things that are inhibiting our authentic walk with Christ. God, do this now for us, for your glory and for our good and our eternal joy. I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.